Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. If you must blink, do it now. Pay careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. And please be warned, if you fidget, if you look away, if you forget any part of what I tell you, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama. This is episode 29 and today I'm going to be talking about the absolutely incredible Kubo and the Two Strings Um, and this is episode three of my animation season. So this is following on from Arthur Christmas, which came out at Christmas obviously, and Akira, um, which came out a little while ago. Talking of Akira, that episode was so much fun to do um, and I hope that came across in the episode because we had such a good laugh. Um, But it turned out an absolute nightmare to edit uh, because it was the first time I'd done a live recording. There was so much echo. It was unbelievable. Um, Seriously though, it's been so well received and obviously Akira is a movie I love so much. So thank you to everyone who downloaded and listened to Akira and obviously especially to Anita and Kira, aka Akira, for travelling to meet me and just being really, really awesome ladies. Um, So... Just a little bit of news. Um, next month, February 2020, uh, the next... <laughs> I don't know why I had to add that in. Um, the podcast turns one year old um, and I'm planning some bits and bobs to celebrate, including uh, a giveaway, an AMA, which is a, an Ask Me Anything, and five episodes. Three of those episodes are actually all coming out on the same day, which now I'm actually saying out loud is pretty crazy, um, but... I'm doing it because I feel like those ones are really special um, because they're all celebrating the work of Studio Ghibli, um, specifically the genius uh, Heo Miyazaki. And a little shout out to friends of the podcast over in Sydney, uh, Katie and Oti, um, for your reference, because they're also celebrating their birthday in February. They're also one year old and they're also doing their own little celebration of Miyazaki. So it was a complete coincidence and we've been DMing each other and we were like, oh my God, what are you doing? Oh my God, what are you doing? Their episodes are going to be completely awesome. I know it, you know it, everyone knows it. I know for definite they're doing Porco Rosso, um, which I'm not going to be covering, um, but there is going to be a little bit of crossover going on. But I implore you, please check out their episodes as well because they are going to be hilarious and and brilliant. So, um, and they're bloody marvellous people and podcasters. So in February, I'm going to be doing some Miyazaki stuff, but I'm also going to be talking a little bit about the stuff that they're doing as well. That's kind of it for news. I'm not really going to go into because I want to talk about Kubo. Interestingly, uh, last episode, we talked about Akira and Akira's very dystopian version of 2019 Japan. Um, But Kubo is also set in Japan, but it's sort of feudal Japan. Um, And according to my research, it's somewhere between the Heian and Edo eras. Um, I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, by the way. 
that's based on the costume and the look um, of the movie. So it could be any point between um, the year 795 to 1868. Um, so let's just say it's not it's very non-specific feudal Japan um, on a wondrous adventure filled with monsters, magic and music. Here's the trailer for Kubo and the Two Strings. My name is Kubo. I look after my mother mostly. What was father like? He was just like you. Strong and so handsome. (laughs) Mother. I use magic to tell stories. If you must blink, do it now. About epic battles, warriors and monsters. But I had no idea. My stories were actually true. We've been looking for you for so long. Mother! Kuba, you must find your father's armor. It's your only chance. very powerful your mother used the magic to save you and bring me to life i'm here to protect you kubo and that means you have to do as i say (laughs) don't mess with the monkey have you seen this crest before of course this is a miracle I have found the son of my master. Your quest is now my quest, too. We don't know anything about you. Firing an arrow is hardly what I call impressive. Literally the first time I've ever done it. Your magic is growing stronger. You need to learn control. Don't touch anything. He did it. I got this. Uh, I don't got this. Claim your birthright, Kubo. Give this story a happy ending. Do you need a little help? No, no, no. doesn't this just sound wonderful i mean it it really really is a wonderful film <laughs> uh i am going to be completely gushing about this film by the way um so a little synopsis about kubo and the two strings 12 year old kubo lives with his catatonic mother on top of a mountain by day he is known as a storyteller to the village below and by night he must return to take care of his mother never finishing the stories he tells one night after encountering the mysterious sisters he's sent away to find the only thing that can protect him his late father's armor on the way, he meets Monkey, a familiar sent by his mother, and Beetle, a cursed samurai who claims to have known his father. Meanwhile, Kubo must learn to develop and control his own magic, which he can utilise through playing his shimizen. And I hope I'm saying shimizen correctly. If I'm not, please feel free to let me know, um, because I am really terrible with pronunciation, and I really do try to get pronunciations right, because I feel like you have to kind of show a little bit of respect, um, and I hope I'm saying shimizen correctly. I want to talk a little bit about the cast um, because there's a very specific reason I want to talk about the cast and I'm not going to dwell on the cast too much. Um, We have Charlize Theron. Um, She plays... Do I have to say spoilers for Kubo and the Two Strings? Okay, well... Spoilers for Kubo and the Two Strings. (laughs) Just, yeah. Um, So Charlize Theron, um, she is one of my favourite actresses ever ever of all time i think she's incredible um but she's really great in this so she plays kubo's mother sariatu um and she also plays monkey um and i'm surprised that this is the first time that charlize has actually featured on this podcast um because i just think she's really highly underrated and i put a post up on twitter about charlize recently um because i watched the movie long shot and i just thought it was hilariously funny um and i kind of feel like she's She's on everyone's radar because everyone's like, oh, yeah, Charlize Theron is excellent. But no one ever really talks about Charlize. Um, So basically what I'm saying is expect more Charlize on Verbal Diorama this year. We also have Art Parkinson as Kubo. 
Um, so he was on Game of Thrones. Um, so he was obviously quite young when he did this. Um, we have Ralph Fine as um, Raiden, the Moon King, uh, slash grandfather. So basically, he's playing another pale-skinned antagonist. Uh, we have George Takai as Hosatu, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa as Hashi, Runimara as Karasu and Washi, the sisters, and Matthew McConaughey as Beetle. It was directed by Travis Knight. This was his directorial debut. It was also produced by him. Travis Knight went on to also do the excellent Transformers movie Bumblebee, which... It's a Transformers movie in a sense. It's got the character Bumblebee in it, but it's such a sweet, brilliant movie. Um, I highly recommend Bumblebee. It is on my big list, actually. So there's a possibility that Bumblebee might pop up at some point. So the story is by Shannon Tyndall and Mark Hames, and the screenplay is by Mark Hames and Chris Butler. The reason why I wanted to specifically talk about the cast is the cast are great. You know, I just want to kind of get that out of the room. I think Charlize Theron is great. I think Art Parkinson brings a real kind of sweetness and joy to Kubo. And Matthew McConaughey is really great as well. Um, But there is a bit of an elephant in the room. So I'm going to get it out of the way now. So um, the director, Travis Knight, um, he was asked about the cast of the movie because there were accusations of whitewashing um, that kind of around the time this movie came out... um, the accusations of whitewashing started. Um, and although a lot of the minor characters, so the villagers, etc., were played by Asian voice actors, the main cast only consisted of two, George Takai and Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa. And even though George Takai is quite highly billed, um, his character only actually has maybe two or three lines in the whole movie and one of which is his classic oh my which I mean it's brilliant it's always great to hear George Takai with his own eyes um and Knight basically responded that the characters are for the most part non-human um such as Monkey and Beetle and the sisters and the Moon King and those that are human such as the villagers are voiced by Asian actors um and the problem with this statement is that the mythical characters themselves are rooted in Japanese culture. And as I said, like, while the cast are great, they still kind of have this disconnect to the Asian culture that they're portraying. Um, and and that is kind of a bit of a problem. Um, and I will talk about it a bit later, but Kubo was a little bit of a disappointment at the box office. And part of me does wonder whether this kind of whitewashing controversy contributed to that somewhat. And I talked about it a little bit in Aladdin as well, that Robin Williams' voicing of the genie in Aladdin um, is widely believed to kind of kicked off this celebrity animated voiceover trend. And it is a terrible trend, really, because it's literally just there to get bums on seats in, in the cinema. Um, and filmmakers tend to always choose these high-profile names over up-and-coming actors um, just to kind of appease distributors and stuff. Um, And it's kind of widely recognised as well that actors of colour tend to get overlooked. I feel like Laika, and I have so much love for Laika, and that's why I want to get this elephant out of the room right now. Um, I feel like they do attempt to tell diverse original stories. um, And I do think they tried to make the best decision possible for Kubo and the Two Strings in a way to kind of appease all sides of the argument in kind of casting the right person for a role. Um, And I really hope that this tiny little misstep on Kubo won't sour an absolute joy of a movie to anyone who chooses to watch it. Um, I feel like that's gone now. Um, I wanted to talk about it because I wanted to highlight that it, it is an issue with this movie, but it doesn't detract from this movie for me because I still find this movie incredibly enjoyable and fun and beautiful. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to start this episode on a low, <laughs> which I feel like I have now. Um, let's talk about Laika because, oh gosh, I can't tell you how much I love Laika. <laughs> um, so the story of Laika starts with a guy called Will Linton. Um, he's actually the man who trademarked the term claymation and Will Vinton developed his own animation studio which was imaginatively called Will Vinton Studios and that was in Portland, Oregon Um, and most famously they worked on the Wizard of Oz sequel Return to Oz they were actually nominated for an Oscar for special effects on that movie and they also did the little California Raisins ads which I was fascinated with as a child and now I know where they came from so 
At the end of the 90s, Will Vinton Studios had worked on several feature-length movies, but they mainly kind of made animated shorts, and they wanted to venture into more full-length features. But in order to do so, they had to get investors on board. And one such investor was Nike owner Phil Knight, and he invested in the business in 1998. And if you're wondering, oh, that Nike, basically, yes, that Nike... So the Nike that does all the sportswear and everything. Um, so obviously Nike, massive company, Phil Knight, very, very wealthy. Um, so by 2002, he became the majority shareholder in Will Vinton Studios. And Will Vinton himself was unable to secure further funding. And he ended up being dismissed from his own studio. Uh, he ended up suing for ownership um, of the name Will Vinton Studios and for damages. Um, so in 2005, the studio was renamed Leica after the first dog sent into space uh, by the Russians in 1957, the Sputnik 2. Um Henry Selick, um, you remember I talked about him in the Stardust episode. He joined Leica as supervising director and Selick was the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas, um, which itself has a very interesting link to Kubo. Both The Nightmare Before Christmas and Kubo and the Two Strings are the only two animated movies to be nominated for a Best Visual Effects Academy Award. Fact. Uh, so Phil Knight now owns Leica. And being one of the richest men in the world can afford to pump money into the studio. So his son, Travis, um, you'll remember him. He's a director. He was originally hired as an intern straight out of college and then as an animator for Will Vinton Studios. So he ended up becoming president and CEO of Leica, um, as well as director and producer of Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, Leica as an entity in its own right first kind of came to prominence after being contracted out to do work on the 2005 movie Corpse Bride. Their first movie, Coraline, was directed by Henry Selick. Um, it came out in 2009. Um, and it, as I mentioned, it was based on the Neil Gaiman book of the same name. So it's this beautifully macabre, dark fantasy with a little sprinkling of the elements of horror. Um, and Coraline was a success at the box office, which is great. Um, and then the company had further success um, with Paranorman and the Box Trolls. Leica have never been afraid to embrace the kind of weird, kooky, horror-based elements of their stories. Um, and they've never felt like a studio that's been restricted by family-friendly aesthetics that maybe other animation studios kind of have to. Um, and they've also not had it easy, um, despite Phil Knight being... Uh, incredibly financially stable uh, as, a, as an owner can be um, because while the stop motion department um, and the Coraline was moving along nicely they had a second movie planned and that movie was a CGI movie and that was going to be called Jack and Ben's Animated Adventure and that movie was cancelled in 2008 and they basically laid off a load of staff um, this was before Coraline was even released um, Henry Selick also left Leica in 2009. He didn't successfully renegotiate his contract with them. And at the end of 2009, more staff lost their jobs. Um, and that was because Leica decided to focus purely on stop motion rather than um, computer animation. And that's kind of quite important because at the time, a lot of companies were really focusing on computer generated animation. It was becoming the norm. And Leica basically was like, no, we want to be different. We want to have uh, a different aesthetic to our movies. And so they decided to focus on stop motion. So after Paranorman and the Box Trolls came Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, so all of Leica's features, including Corpse Bride, have been nominated for a Best Animated Feature Academy Award. And I can say this because the Oscars have just been announced. Um, Missing Link has also just been nominated for... Um, the same award at the 2020 Oscars. So Leica's every single animated feature they've ever done has been nominated. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the making of Kubo. <laughs> and you'll notice that I am tend to just call it Kubo rather than Kubo and the Two Strings. There's no reason for that other than I don't want to get tongue-tied and say Kubo and the Strings because <laughs> It's probably going to happen because I'm quite excited. And when I'm excited, I talk really fast. So it's just easier for me to refer to it as Kubo. Um, so Kubo was the first film um, made in a three-picture deal between Leica and Focus Features. And they'd had, obviously, the three previous collaborations we've already talked about. And development began in 2012. And it was five years in development. 
Laika has always had this mantra of making and telling original, unique stories. And Kubo in particular resonated with director Travis Knight because when he was a child, he spent a lot of time on business trips with his father in Japan. And he loved these Japanese folk tales and mythology. And he really wanted to take these stories that he loved and infuse them with Western cinematic traditions, whilst also kind of preserving the scope and grandeur of the mythos of, you know, when you're working with miniature puppets or indeed large puppets. I mean, we'll come on to large puppets in a bit. Um, The sheer feat of imagination and engineering and patience to make stop motion is... I can't even comprehend how much work goes into this. I mean, I'll talk about YouTube and videos and stuff, but there's loads of videos. Laika have an incredible um, YouTube channel with so many videos of their stuff. Um, how they made stuff, how long it takes to do stuff. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, but so for Kubo, uh, Laika used nine and a half inch stop motion puppets for the characters. They used small scale four model sets for the, for Kubo's town. Um, they had two model ships. Um, so they had one intact ship and one broken in two. Uh, they did use CGI backdrops um, as well as they utilized state of the art uh, 3D printing techniques from a company called Stratasis. Um, so basically, Stratasis, yeah, like I'm going to say that right. Um, they they had this rapid 3D printing technique and it was still in beta. It wasn't even out. And they said to Leica, yeah, you can use it, beta test it for us and uh, we'll give it to you. So that's what they did. Um, and they 3D printed um, the multitude of facial expressions needed for pretty much each character. So... Each character had hundreds of face models and they basically painstakingly switched them for each frame um, and also at the same time move each puppet limb from limb. So basically everything had to be very carefully storyboarded because you had to know how the character was going to move, what the character's expression was going to be, what the character was going to say at that particular time. And obviously we're talking about 24 frames per second. So 24 frames per second and each frame the character is slightly moving and then the next one slightly moving again but they might have a slightly different movement on the face and the clothing might move ever so slightly I mean it's genuinely mind-blowing um Kubo himself had 23,187 faces um and 48 million possible facial expressions I mean this just like I'm not making these numbers up. <laughs> I wish I was. Ma- I wish I just plucked a number out of thin air there. But I genuinely didn't. I genuinely researched this on the internet and found out these numbers, um, and they are just astonishing, mind blowing numbers. Um, and the facts just keep coming. I'm just gonna keep. Whip- <laughs> I'm just gonna keep whipping through these facts. So, Leica has this incredible ability to. To make stop motion feel like the classic stop motion animation of old. And they also have this incredible attention to detail. Um, And the bit that I always kind of remember and kind of get stuck on when I think of their attention to detail. So there's a bit at the start of the movie um, and Kubo does a lot of origami and he works a lot with paper. So throughout the movie, there are just hundreds and hundreds of little slips of paper that Kubo's working with. Um, and there's a scene at the start of the movie where Kubo is picking up pieces of paper off the floor. And there's a bit in the movie where he fails to pick up a piece of paper, but then he goes back and he picks it up. And that animating, just that few seconds, would have probably taken weeks to animate. And so for Laika to not only kind of plan this and animate it, but have a character that stop motion have this kind of little flaw where he goes and he fails to pick up a piece of paper so he has to bend back down and pick it up again it's it's just it's so it's flawless and it's tantamount as well to the seriousness of their craft and like a take what they do i mean they have fun they clearly have a great time making these movies and making the best movie that they possibly can but they take it so seriously it is an art form it genuinely is they do mix stop motion and CGI. So they have these full sets, these village sets. They have the characters. None of that is CGI. That is all puppets and models. Um, but they do have green screen backdrops. Um, 
so the backdrops might be CGI, but every movement, every motion of these characters, um, every movement of the weapons, everything that happens on the actual set is all real. Everything is real. Every time Monkey wields that sword and it shines, it's real. Um, it's all been made most of the time, 99% of the time it's made by hand. Um, it's tangible. It it looks real on screen. And it kind of just adds to just this realism, I guess, of, of this ancient mythical Japan that Kubo lives in. Genuinely, even thinking about it just like floors me. <laughs> how amazing this movie is and how amazing Laika is. It was a team of 65 designers and craftspeople. So they painstakingly built each character. So each character's purpose built. Um, it has its own completely movable metal skeleton. It's surrounded by plastic muscles, essentially. And then each character has its own costume and they have a costume designer. Um, and that's quite rare on an animated feature to have costume design. Um, but a, an actual costume designer uh, used laser etching and vinyl pressing to create these elaborate costume detailing that had kind of never been before seen in animation. Um, it also allowed the animators to hold the fabric in certain positions. And that made the movement of the characters and the clothing that the characters are wearing to look more realistic. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but they like don't take the easy route. They never have. If you look at any of the stuff that they've ever done, it's clear just how much work goes into these movies. And they never take the easy route. They always prefer more of a slow and steady wins the race kind of approach. And it really is quite amazing. Leica themselves uh, are very open about the work that goes into the stop motion. Um, as I mentioned, they have a YouTube channel. Um, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Um, but you can watch there how they made Kubo, how they made Coraline, how they made the box trolls, how they made Paranorman, how they made Missing Link. Um, and it's just fascinating. Uh, genuinely, there's videos that are time-lapsed and they just show you every single thing that these animators have done. Just to watch it and watch watch them working is just... Uh... I need a thesaurus because I can't think of any more words. Um, so Kubo's ship, specifically, I want to talk about Kubo's ship because that ship uh, Kubo puts together out of leaves um, and there's this wonderful scene where he summons the leaves and they make this beautiful ship. So those leaves, there was a quarter of a million of these tiny little leaves and each of them was attached by hand. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine going into work every day and attaching little miniature leaves to a ship and then the next day attaching more little miniature leaves to a ship and then the next day adding more miniature little leaves to a ship? I'm sure they had a team of people, but that sequence in itself on the ship took 19 months to shoot. And that's not even the biggest thing they did. Because if you've seen Kubo and the Two Strings, you'll know what I'm going to talk about when I talk about the biggest thing they did. Um, and the the biggest thing they did isn't even the big boss of the movie um, because it's the first uh, antagonist that they meet, um, the giant skeleton in the Hall of Bones. So the skeleton um, is known as Gasha Dokoro in Japanese legend. Gasha Dokoro, I'm going to say it because for some reason I can say that word. Um, they're spirits that take the form of a large skeleton. So it's said in uh, Japanese legend that they're the bones of people who've died in starvation or on battle, but who were never buried. So these people were never laid to rest. So their spirits live on in the bones and then the bones kind of conform this ginormous skeleton um and Laika had this plan to have this uh skeleton in the movie and the original plan was to have it smaller scale so they were gonna have a smaller scale Gasha Dokoro puppet and they were gonna make smaller versions of Kubo, Monkey and Beetle to animate against it during the sequence but it became apparent that the smaller the puppet the less able it would be to kind of pose successfully and it probably wouldn't look as good up close. Um, so when we're talking about those kind of puppets, we're talking about the Kubo monkey and beetle puppets. They wanted to reduce the size of those. Um, but then they realised they wouldn't look as good as the original nine and a half inch puppets. So 
in order to keep the nine and a half inch versions of Kubo and Monkey and Beetle, they had to make the skeleton bigger. And so they did. Um, and there was never any question of a CGI skeleton because this is Leica and they chose the most difficult thing that they could possibly do. And it was to make a absolutely ginormous 16 foot tall skeleton. Um, so they did try and make it a bit easier. Um, they didn't want to make it too complex. So for this puppet, obviously I mentioned earlier with the Kubo and Monkey and Beetle puppets, they had a metal skeleton. But for the skeleton, because it was so large, they couldn't have a metal skeleton. They couldn't have ball joints um, because the skeleton needed to be light enough to move. And they didn't want it to look too heavy and cumbersome because essentially they wanted it to look menacing, but they didn't want it to look like it couldn't move itself. Um so what they did was they enlisted a company who could print and cut high-density foam. And they used the high-density foam to make the ribs. And obviously that made the creature as light as it possibly could be. Um, the skull was ended up being made of papier-mâché. And then they used magnets to attach the arms. So the arms had a span of 24 foot. And they attached the head to the torso. So the torso, even though it was made of foam... It still weighed 400 pounds. And as I mentioned, fully constructed, it was 16 foot tall. And that puppet holds the Guinness World Record for the largest puppet ever used on a set. So that's pretty cool. The skeleton was too heavy to use motion control system. Um, they used motion control on the box trolls for the mecha drill. Instead, Leica took inspiration from amusement park rides and they ended up building a hexapod. So it was a six axis actuator that could move the torso in all directions. I'm also doing the movements as well, by the way. Um, and then they use a cable and pulley system, which is obviously a really simple system um, for the arms and hands. So essentially, the skeleton was like a giant marionette puppet. Um, they did create a one-sixth scale skeleton puppet for some of the shots. Um, but generally, they used the big puppet. Um, and all in all, the Hall of Bone sequence took six months to construct and they filmed it for a year. Just genius <laughs> it's just absolute genius um Leica is incredible um this is one of those podcasts and I've I've had a few of these where I feel like I can't stress enough the visual achievement because if you've not seen Kubo and the Two Strings um and I'd argue well, why are you still listening if you because I've just completely spoiled everything um can't possibly summarize into words just how incredible it is um, and how stunning it looks. Um, but not only that, the fact that Leica never shy away from movies that might have an interesting tone to them. Um, I've mentioned that they like the kooky, they like horror. Um, but Leica do tend to focus more on making movies that appeal to families. Um, and as I mentioned before, I've mentioned this a few times, especially in Akira. Um, the animation is not just for children it's something that children can enjoy but it's not just a, an art form for children um, and Leica do make movies that are I wouldn't say for young children but they're for families they're for families to sit and enjoy together and I find that Leica are one of the more interesting animation companies in the sense that they don't feel like children need to be wrapped in cotton wool um, and kind of shielded from topics like death and ghosts and um and it's kind of a horror kind of aspect um and Kubo does talk about death um and it does feature death um quite prominently it doesn't show death specifically it does show monkey being wounded it implies death and it implies death um by the way of things like broken masks and um broken monkey dolls and then it shows ghosts and it shows spirits of people. Um, but it also shows that death isn't the end of anyone's story um, and that memories are important. And I'm, I want to talk about that in a little bit, actually, because I want to come back to that. Because there's another movie that I, I always find a little bit reminiscent of Kubo in, in some respects. Um, basically, Kubo is a love letter to Japanese culture and tradition. Um, it features things like traditional wood carvings, in-wash paintings, origami, as I've mentioned, music, um, and Japanese folk tales. Um, it also takes quite a lot of inspiration from filmmakers like Akira Kurosawa 
and aforementioned Hayao Miyazaki. Um, as I mentioned, put a pin in Miyazaki because we are going to come back to him. Um, the other thing that I really like about Kubo is it talks a lot about family, um, specifically the family that we're related to um, and how you can't choose the family that you're related to. But it also talks a little bit about found family. Kubo builds this relationship with Monkey and Beetle throughout the movie and it, and there are plenty of hints that who they are throughout the movie. Um, but the family aspect, that you, that you can't choose your family, is is an interesting topic to kind of go through because quite a lot of children do grow up in homes where you know they might not talk to their dad's side of the family or to their mum's side of the family um or that they might have grandparents who they don't speak to because of a certain reason and in Kubo's situation his mother warns him about his grandfather and aunts um she never discredits the the relationship between Kubo and those people even though his grandfather did a terrible thing and, and removed his eye as a baby, which Kubo's mother wants to keep Kubo in this reality, in this in this realm, because the relationship that she had with Kubo's father, she was obviously of um, a very kind of mystical spirit realm um, and he was a, a samurai warrior and they had this kind of forbidden love um, which resulted in Kubo, and Kubo has these incredible powers. And I think it's important to note that although Kubo's aunts and grandfather are technically the bad guys, they do actually love Kubo. It's just not the same kind of love. Like in most families, they have a difference of opinion. So their opinion is that Kubo would be happier outside the mortal realm. Um, and that by taking his other eye um, will blind him um, of his humanity. And they think that's what's best for Kubo. Um, but his mother believes that it's not. Um, and she will do whatever she can to keep Kubo away from that. Both parties in this family love Kubo. They just have a different way of expressing that love. Additionally, instead of the movie taking the route of Kubo not knowing who his grandfather is. Kubo knows from the very start that the Moon King is his grandfather. Um, and I think a lesser movie would make that the revelation at the end. Kubo knows this from the very start. Um, and instead, the reveal is of his mother being Monkey and his father, who's presumed dead, is Beetle. The Moon King, rather than dying at the end, um, which probably could have happened um is instead turned mortal um devoid of memory and instead of being derided and condemned by the villagers who were genuinely quite frightened of this beast because he turns into this kind of beaut it's actually quite beautiful <laughs> quite beautiful you know lit up snake um at the end um and instead of the villagers kind of condemning him they tell him that he's a wonderful man and that he's kind and that he's helpful and and friendly. And because the grandfather doesn't know who he is, he believes these stories of him being uh, a kind, friendly man. Um, and in doing so, he becomes kind and friendly and he becomes Kubo's grandfather, which I think is a really nice way to end the movie, actually. Um, and it might be a bit of a simplistic way to say kindness breeds kindness. Um, but I think it's true because being kind to someone who isn't won't make that person transform into a good person. But sometimes a kind word can make a difference. You know, even saying hello to a stranger might make that person's day. Um, that person might be really lonely um, and they might not have spoken to anyone else that day. So that one little bit of kindness can make a difference to someone um, and on the age of the internet and social media, emphasising everyone's terrible traits, um, a kind word can often diffuse a discussion turning into an argument, mostly because the people who are trying to cause arguments aren't expecting a kind word back. Um, so 
I think that's really important, actually. And I think that's a really nice way to end the movie. It doesn't, it does end in death. It, I was going to say it doesn't end in death, but it does end in death. But it also redeems a character without him actually having to really redeem himself. Um, and that sounds a bit weird, but it works. It really works for the movie. Um, I mentioned earlier about the similarities between Kubo and another movie. And it's a bit of a tedious link, I'm not going to lie. But I always find Kubo very similar to Coco. Um, and now Coco is a Pixar movie. Coco is also absolutely incredible feat of animation. Um, so Coco, if you've not seen it, is about Diaz de Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Um, and the reason why I kind of do have this link between Kubo and Coco, I learned a lot from watching Coco about the Day of the Dead and about um, the ofrenda and uh, that you place your ancestors' photos on the ofrenda and you honour them with gifts at the graveside. And essentially it's about families getting together and remembering... Um, parents or grandparents um, and sharing stories about them um, because the dead are only truly dead when their memories die on earth um, I feel like Kubo does talk about this it doesn't dwell on it as much as Coco does um, and it's kind of less significant to the plot but the festival that Kubo attends at the start is a Japanese Buddhist festival called Obon um, and it's the ceremony of the lamps. And this is a way that uh, Japanese Buddhists honour their dead. Um, and it's very similar to the Mexican Day of the Dead. Um, and obviously, at the start, Kubo tries to talk to his father. Um, his father, as it turns out, is not actually dead, so he can't. And that's why he can't talk to his father. Um, but at the end, he can speak to his parents. And it makes me cry. Uh, it makes me cry at the start. It makes me cry at the end. Um, that's not unusual because, as you know, I cry at most things. I think for a movie that's predominantly aimed at children, I think it does a really great job of talking about death and about remembering people and keeping their spirit alive. And I think that's really important. When I was researching this movie, one of the main questions that kept coming up was, why is the movie called Kubo and the Two Strings? And to me, it makes perfect sense. But considering it was the question that most featured on the internet, um, I kind of just wanted to go into it just in case anyone was wondering why it was called Kubo and the Two Strings. So so Kubo's chemise has three strings. Um, and at the end of the movie, the three strings are made of Kubo's hair, his mother's hair and his father's bowstring. So that makes up the three strings. So essentially the movie is Kubo. Kubo is the first string and the two other strings, but it's not called two other strings. It's just Kubo and the two strings. Um, it can't be Kubo and the three strings because Kubo is one of the strings. But anyway, um, so I just want to quickly get in there. Um, my obligatory Keanu reference, um, it was always going to be really tedious. And honestly, at this point, I kind of just toyed with Keanu and Kubo starting with the same letter. And that is ridiculous, but I did toy with it. Um, but I have kind of got a bit of a better one. It's not that much better, to be honest, but here we go. Um, so Kubo is a story about a samurai, uh, <laughs> as is Keanu's 2013 flop, 47 Ronin. Um, so he plays a man not called Kubo, but called Kai. Um, and Kai also starts with a K, as does Keanu. There you go. It's terrible, but it's always going to be really difficult. How can, you can't possibly link Keanu and Laika. It's it's really tough unless he actually stars in a movie uh, that Laika does in future. Let's hope. I also just wanted to quickly briefly mention the music. Um, the theme song at the end is sung by uh, Regina Spector. It's a cover of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is a song that George Harrison wrote for the Beatles. Um, and obviously Beatle is a character in the movie. Um, and I did touch on it at the start about the financial failure of Kubo. Um, so Kubo is the second lowest grossing Laika movie. Uh, the lowest grossing Laika movie is Missing Link, which is their most recent one. Um, so Kubo was made for $60 million. So that was the same amount as Coraline, 
Paranorman and the Box Trolls. Um, and while those all made money, Kubo only made 69.9 million worldwide. Um, and truthfully, although that hurts, it doesn't hurt as much as Missing Link, um, which so for Missing Link, they upped the budget to $100 million. Um, and if you see Missing Link, it is absolutely gorgeous. Um, the story is a little bit basic for me. I much prefer the storytelling in Kubo and in Coraline um, to Missing Link. Um, but it is very, very pretty. Um, and Missing Link only made 26.2 million worldwide on a 100 million budget. So either way, it's a really sad time, actually, because when you have a company that's as innovative as Leica, um, and it's really struggling at the moment, um, especially against the kind of behemoths of Disney, um, which owns Pixar and Blue Sky and loads of animation studios Disney own now, um, and Sony and Comcast. So Comcast own things like DreamWorks and, and all of that. Leica's really struggling. Um, and it's something Ardman are struggling with too. Um, despite also being innovative and injecting their kind of trademark humour into movies. Um, and I will be so genuinely sad if anything happens to Leica or Ardman. Um, I might riot a little bit if anything happens to Leica or Ardman. Um, and I think it just kind of, it just kind of stresses that we do need to help and support these independent studios um, because these are the guys that are bringing out the original ideas and that they are kind of at least trying to put something new out there rather than another sequel. Um, and admittedly, Ardman are doing Chicken Run 2, um, but I feel like they just desperately need to be supported. Um, so for the next movie that Leica put out, I would implore you just to please go and see it because if anything happens to Leica, Leica is my baby Yoda, guys. If anything happens to Leica, I don't know what I'll do. Um, I always like to ask for social media thoughts. So I have a handful. So on Twitter at uh, SYIMS podcast, which is uh, Sorry You're In My Seat, uh, said, I mean, where to start? It's utterly perfect. It's a film where passion is woven into every thread and every movement. It's visually beautiful. The story is engaging and the filmmaking is masterful. I loved every second and every frame of this film. I'm so grateful for Leica. I mean, basically just said what it's taken me like 50 minutes to say has just been summarised in a wonderful tweet. <laughs> um... At False Starts Pod said, When they ousted Henry Selick after Coraline, I was upset, but they've truly gone from strength to strength, and Kubo may very well be their best film. It's gorgeous too, and has put Travis Knight on my director's to watch list. At Rob Noardi said, The first like I saw at the cinema, and wow, what a fantastic film it is. It looks stunning, it's perfectly pitched, and it annoys me no end that nobody gives like their due for consistently producing these wonderful films. Love Kubo, and I adore Box Trolls as well. At the Middlebourne said, I think that it's the most beautiful stop motion film I've ever seen. The motion is so fluid, the lighting so perfect, and the character design so insanely detailed, I still can't quite believe it's not CGI. I know, right? Um, at Gnarly Jim Bob said, The pot face sisters still haunt my dreams. They really, that's what I'm trying to say about this movie. And I feel like, sometimes I feel like I am genuinely talking to myself. <laughs> and I know that there are some people who do listen, but genuinely frightening and I kind of wonder if I was a kid say like my niece's age so like nine and I was watching this I probably would have nightmares but I genuinely do think it is something that's that children should watch and enjoy and and get something out of because I guarantee they will um over on Instagram at Mobisize said love it Dig around and you will find some people think this could be a story follow-up of the Japanese folktale of the moon princesses in the bamboo. Uh, Vegimorph said, I like the mythology and adventure of it. And despite it being a bit predictable, the identities of Kubo's fellow travellers was a fun and touching reveal. But the ending was a bit random and underwhelming. Maybe I need to see it again, though. Yes, you do. Please see it again and let me know. <laughs> um... I think it's one of those movies that does improve on every single watch. Every single watch you will find something more beautiful and perfect. And it will just wow you. It wows me every single time. Um, and finally, uh, at this film is lit, said, We loved Kubo and the Two Strings. It's a beautiful film. And it is. 
Okay, so I have reached the end. This podcast is actually a bit longer than I thought it was going to be. And I think it's because I've rambled on quite a bit about how beautiful this movie is. But I genuinely can't put into words just how amazing this movie is. It is perfect. It's so intricately detailed in every way. Um, It's well worth you finding um, a Blu-ray copy of it. Um, I don't think it's on any streaming services at the moment because I did have a look in the UK. Um, I own it on Blu-ray. Now, I will fully admit that I did not see this at the cinema. And I berate myself all the time for not going to see it because I should have gone to see it. I meant to. I never did. I bought it on Blu-ray. But it's absolutely exquisite in every regard. The design of it is beautiful. The the villains in it, obviously I've mentioned the giant skeleton. I haven't even mentioned the, the eyes, which, oh, oh, Jesus, the water, the animation of the water, everything that happens underwater, when they're on the boat and they're catching the fish, it's just, I mean, I've seen the videos on YouTube and I'm still like, how? How did they do that? I know I've seen the videos about how they actually went through the process of creating stop motion water and it still blows my mind it's just this is phenomenal this is one of the greatest animation achievements of all time of all time i'm going to put it out there and say this is one of the best animated movies you will ever see in your entire life if you've not seen it go go and see it now Um, if you have seen it please go and see it again please buy it I know I said it in The Iron Giant that about how much I love The Iron Giant, and I do. And I still say that The Iron Giant is the best movie of 1999 by far. But this is just so beyond anything. Just the level of detail and, and work and thought that's gone into this movie is just, it's just an outstanding achievement. And how they didn't win the Academy Award, because let's be honest, although the Oscars have been announced and generally the Oscars are so out of touch, it's unbelievable. At least Laika are getting nominated. But the fact that Laika aren't winning is just... Who? Who is voting? Who is voting for the Oscars right now? It's just crazy. It's just crazy. And I know that Pixar do great work. They really do. The next movie that I'm featuring is a Pixar movie. And it's one of my favourites ever, ever, ever of all time. But this is just so beyond anything that Pixar do. And, oh, sorry, I'm getting angry. I don't mean to. Um, I think I should wrap up. This is just a perfect movie. It's just 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 movie. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, thank you for listening uh, to my rant about Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, as always, I love to hear your thoughts on every movie that I feature. I would love to hear your thoughts on Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, so before I announce the next episode, um, I want to just tell you something quickly about Offscreen Babble. So our Patreon producer, Sade, and her husband, Kyle, um, they host Offscreen Babble. And... Um, I mentioned last episode um, because I recorded the episode for Akira was recorded in November and then I recorded the sort of intro and outro uh, just before I released it. Um, And at that time, the Golden Globes had just been announced. um, And I basically said about how I was always quite astonished about how Sade and Kyle turn around the nominations for awards so quick. And they've done it again with the Oscars because... The Oscars were announced and I swear to God, I got a notification on my phone literally like two or three hours later to say that Offscreen Babble had a new episode and it wasn't just about the Oscars. It was about the Oscars and like 10 other things. So basically, <laughs> I mean, Offscreen Babble, I genuinely, they're like the liker of podcasting. How do they do it? Maybe we need some YouTube videos to show us how Sade and Carl do it, but they do. And they're just wonderful people. And genuinely, uh, I love them. And 
you should download and listen to Offscreen Babble so you can get them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, basically everywhere. Um, their website, offscreenbabble.com. Um, and they're obviously also on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Offscreen Babble. So please find and follow and subscribe and download to them. Next episode, I have kind of mentioned it already in a way. As a patron of the show, um, you get certain perks and one of the perks is you get the upcoming release schedule. Um, so our patrons of the show, Sade, Simon, Hardy L, Claudia and Simon, they already know what's coming next. Um, but I kind of feel like because we've been in Japan for two episodes, I want to leave Japan. I want to take flight, let's say. No capes. And I want to revisit Brad Bird because... I've mentioned the Iron Giant. I love the Iron Giant and I love Brad Bird. So I think most people, when they think of Brad Bird, they think of this movie and they think of its 2018 sequel. I want to focus on the first movie because it is my favourite Pixar movie. And if I was asked about leaving the saving of the world to the men, I would say, I don't think so. I'm going to be talking about 2004's The Incredibles and I feel like it is going to be incredible, but I'm going to, I'm going to wait. Let's wait and find out whether it's going to be incredible. But that movie is incredible. And I can't wait to talk about The Incredibles. I can't wait to talk about my first Pixar movie. I can't wait to talk about Pixar um, and everything they've achieved. It's probably a bit out there, I think, to go for The Incredibles over everything else that Pixar have, have ever done. Um, but I have a very special affinity with The Incredibles and I just think it's incredible. Um, if you like this episode, I've also done episodes on <clears throat> Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin 1992-2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Oh, I took a breath. I didn't mean to take a breath. <laughs> to go through it all on one breath and no chance x-men dark phoenix charlie's angels 2000 the mummy 1999 the matrix john carter willow the iron giant scott pilgrim versus the world logan edge of tomorrow legally blonde buffy the vampire slayer season four episode 10 hush mystery men passengers stardust constantine arthur christmas and akira and they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from you can follow me and my rants about Kubo and the Two Strings on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. As I mentioned, you can support the show at patreon.com patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. Uh, that, that costs um, from $2 a month. And as I mentioned, you get perks, you get access to the upcoming schedule, you get a shout out on the next episode, um, all the way up to being a producer, just like Sade. Also... Kubo and the Two Strings is coming out early for patrons. So patrons are getting Kubo and the Two Strings a couple of days before everyone else. Um, and I'm hoping to do that for the majority of episodes going forward. I can't do it for every episode because some episodes are scheduled on specific dates. Um, but Kubo is the first episode that's actually going to be with patrons first. So everyone else, you're listening to this a couple of days after patrons. If you want the episode a couple of days early, then maybe consider supporting the show. It's completely up to you because obviously you're going to get the episode eventually. Um, you can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Uh, you can visit my website, which is verbaldiorama.com. If you like what I do and if you like my rants about Kubo and the Two Strings and you want to leave me a review telling me about my rants about Kubo and the Two Strings being incredible. Actually, no, it's not incredible. The Incredibles is incredible. Kubo and the Two Strings is astonishing, but it doesn't matter. You can do so on iTunes and I would really appreciate that. Um, and finally, I have a column over at Film Stories magazine and Film Stories is an independent British movie magazine. I would love it if you would support it so you can do so. You can buy one-off copies. You can now buy subscription to digital copies um, for, I think, six months or 12 months at a reduced price. Or you could buy physical copies on subscription as well. Um, so if you go over to filmstories.co.uk slash magazine, um, it gives you all of the information of what you, could, what you need to do to purchase. I'm also doing work for Film Stories Online. Part of what I do in the magazine and what I do online is recommending basically other movie podcasts. So 
if there's a movie podcast out there that's British, it'll probably be online at some point because I have a little list that I'm working through. Um, I always take uh, suggestions for that. So I'm specifically looking for British movie podcasts, especially those hosted by women, because there aren't very many hosted by women on my list. I'm also looking for podcasts that are hosted by people of colour. And I'm also looking for podcasts that are hosted by LGBTQ people. So if you're British and you're female or you're uh, a person of colour, or you're LGBTQ and you host a movie podcast, then please get in touch with me because I really want to feature your podcast on Film Stories because I want to keep the recommendations as diverse as possible. I think that's it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I feel like this episode's a bit mishmashy. Um, but do you know what? I love this movie and I'm really proud of the achievements that this movie has done. And um, I... I just, it's just, it's just a phenomenal, incredible achievement. I'm using the word incredible again, and I don't mean to, but (laughs) anyway, this is it. I am done. My final thoughts for this episode. Don't mess with the monkey. Goodbye. (laughs) 